Father, thank you for these words of hope. We need them. We need to be reminded often that you have a big picture plan to bring all things to a glorious consummation in Christ. To reconcile all things together in Him. For your eternal glory and our eternal good. So now I ask that as I preach and teach that your spirit would gift me and really help me. I confess my weaknesses in all things so that the power of Christ himself might rest upon me. That this message would be to your glory and and for really the edifying of the people that have come out to be here to worship you. So I ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 8 is a passage about assurance. One of the key themes of this entire chapter is the assurance of salvation that God's people, His children, have. It begins, of course, as we've mentioned many times, with no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And it ends with no possibility of separation from the love of God to His people in Christ. It is a passage all about assurance designed by the Holy Spirit Himself to ensure that you as a child of God are resting in the salvation, the fullness of it, the completeness of it that God has provided for you in Christ and guaranteed for you by His Spirit's presence in you. It's all about assurance and that's why these verses beginning in verse 17 and really running through verse 30 are so important because what they do is give you a glimpse of what Paul calls our hope. That future, not not a wishful thinking hope like the world's, but the confident expectation of future good and glory as God brings all things to its glorious completion, including your salvation. Fully and completely and finally conforming you to the very image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a guaranteed thing. And we need that in this world, especially in times of suffering. I don't know if you caught that in these verses I read, but there is a guarantee of salvation for the children of God, but there's also a guarantee of suffering for the children of God. Matter of fact, it's an absolute necessity in order to be glorified. Did you catch that? In verse 17, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. 
And all true believers must understand that our future hope is glorious and free from suffering, but the path we walk in this world to get there is not. It is riddled with suffering, with Christ, for Christ, sometimes because of our following Christ. This world is filled with suffering. And so we have to have a good understanding of what suffering does. And Paul helped us with that back in chapter 5. The things it produces in us. The things God is doing in and through it as we suffer. But we also have to have an eternal perspective on suffering. I mean, isn't that exactly what he says in verse 18? Have an eternal perspective on suffering when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You would be wasting your time trying to compare any suffering you walk through in this world with the glory that's going to be revealed to you one day. It's not worth the time. Do you see what he's saying? It's not worthy of an examination to see how it compares. The glory is going to so far beyond surpass it. So we need to be a people in this world. Yes, we live here in this world and we're walking through our daily life and we're fulfilling our daily responsibilities and obligations. And as we're doing that and following Christ, we're suffering at various times. We're walking through various trials, but through the whole thing, God wants us to keep our eye on the future goal, the future prize of what He calls our inheritance in Christ. That we have an inheritance waiting for us. Keep your eye on the prize. What are you walking through today that is causing you discomfort, pain, sorrow, anxiety? We have to walk through those things. But keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on this future inheritance that is laid up and stored up in heaven for His children, you see. This is a new section that we're beginning this morning on really seeing, looking at what theologians call eschatology. It's a fancy word, comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means final or last things. It's looking forward to eternity and future hope. And I would argue, Christian, listen, that the things that we find in these verses about eschatology, our doctrine of last things, are really the things of most importance. I have a reason for saying that. I fear that many Christians get so caught up in what they consider to be the doctrine of last things end times events, speculations and thoughts about 
what's happening in the world with Russia or China. I'm trying to find out how that all culminates together. A real fascination about the mark of the beast. Is it the COVID vaccine? Could it be? They're more fascinated with horse-sized locusts running around, stinging people and causing death than they are about the main point and thrust of it all. It's the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ and our eternal hope. Don't get lost in the weeds. So many people do. So many people in circles, like our churches, unfortunately, get lost in the weeds of things that have been hotly debated in church history. Beliefs about end times, things that didn't even appear until the late 19th century and all of a sudden became somehow fundamentals of our faith. Things that are of lesser significance not entirely unimportant. Don't hear me wrong. All of God's Word is profitable. But there are things of greater importance. And if you miss the thing of most importance, what it's all going to, our eternal hope, you're going to miss the blessings of the peace that comes with that. You see, when Paul wants to be real with things and address Christians and say, you're going to suffer, And it's going to be hard and difficult. He doesn't give some prophetic outlines of end times events like that's going to bring anyone any comfort. If I'm in the hospital one day and I'm suffering in the hospital and you come in and you open up Revelation chapters anything past 5 or before 19 to 22, I'm going to be upset with you. These aren't things that bring hope. What brings hope is this, and the whole point of the book of Revelation is this. God wins. And one day He makes all things new and He reigns over all creation, a beautiful, brand new creation. And guess what? If you're His children, you have an inheritance in that. And everything else we read and we study, we do so with humility because guess what? Guess what, Calvary Bible Church and your eschatology, you might be wrong. I might be wrong on some of those details. You know, me even saying that, I would guess, would have gotten me disinvited from this pulpit in years past. Those things are not fundamentals. Good believers disagree on all of them. They're not unimportant, but they're not fundamentals. And they're not going to help you when you have to walk through suffering. That's why at Calvary I say, when it comes to the doctrine of last things, we, we, we want to approach eschatology with humility, a humble eschatology. In much of it saying, I think this is the way it's going to go. But there are good and godly people who disagree with me and maybe they're right and maybe I'm wrong.
when we practice eschatology here at Calvary Bible Church, let's major on the majors and really minor on the minors. Let's really focus on the things that God has put at the most prominent positions, and that is the future resurrection unto glory. That is the return of Christ, the new creation, new heavens, new earth, and the fact that we get to be there. That's a kind of eschatology we really need, especially in this day and age. You know, for some of you, it may be time for a time to set, up, to set aside your charts and your timelines of future events and the focusing on some of those things and really do exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It may be helpful for some of you that get really enthusiastic about some of these things to set your hope fully for a time on that actual appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might find that it would bring to you much more peace and joy and motivation to live for Him when you're thinking about what Paul's talking about here the glory to come, the redemption of our bodies, the full and final summation of all things in Jesus Christ. I hope what I've said has been understood and really taken in the heart that I designed it. We are a people who have an inheritance. Verse 17, if you're a child, listen how he reasons. We've already been discussing the fact that if you have Christ, His Spirit dwells within you. The Spirit Himself, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me just pause right there and, and remind us something important about that. True assurance, I mean that real faith, assurance, and hope of eternal future and glory is something the Spirit Himself gives to the children of God. He's active within the children of God. He's actually witnessing with our spirit, affirming the fact you are a beloved child of God and therefore you can cry out, Abba, Father. And know that is that kind of intimate, familial relationship you have with the Father every bit as much as the Lord Jesus Christ could. Jesus Christ invites us into the relationship with the Father on earth that He had. Does that shock you? Does that surprise you? He's inviting you into that relationship. He says to His disciples in the upper room, even when you pray, it's not like you've got to give me the prayer and then I'll deliver it to the Father because the Father Himself loves you, you see. The Spirit assures us of this fact, especially in those hard times, especially in times of suffering when we do as Jesus did in, in Mark 14 and we just sometimes fall right on our face and we cry out what? Abba, Father, help me. 
The Spirit assures us that God is there and that He's listening, that He loves us and that He responds, that He delivers His people and He helps them. And if you're a child, verse 17, then you are an heir, an heir of God and fellow heir with Christ. An heir is someone who receives an inheritance. Paul doesn't use the full word here, inheritance, in this passage, but the underlying Greek word is related to it, is the idea if you're an heir, you're going to receive an inheritance. And I think we understand this. We, when, when, when perhaps your father passed away, if, if he has at this point, you received from him something. What was his is given to you, you see. You become an inheritor of your father, your parents. Well, in a much greater way, an infinitely greater way and more glorious way, we receive an inheritance from God our Father as His children. That is what we are going to receive in eternity. That's what we're looking forward to, see? We are heirs if we are children What exactly is our inheritance? I don't know if you've ever taken much time to think about that. It's an easy question to answer or to ask, and it's not as easy to answer in a concise way. There are many aspects, I think, to the inheritance that we have awaiting us in our eternal future. There's many things that we can look at, and some of them, friends, we have to understand God has not told us everything there is to tell us about our future inheritance. There's one thing you need to know about God. He loves surprises. He is a God who is going to delight in the surprise of His children when they see what He had in store for them. When you're there and you see it, it's going to be so far beyond the glory you could imagine even right now. So if you're trying to imagine what this is going to be like, it's going to far surpass anything you could possibly imagine. If you could get your mind to think of how good it's going to be, it's going to be way infinitely more better than what you could imagine. God loves surprises, so we don't have an answer in entirety to all of the details of our inheritance. Sorry to disappoint some of you of a more curious mind. But there are things we can know about this inheritance. There are big picture things that we can know about this inheritance, and some of them are right here in this passage. So let me show you this. And I ha- I'll put a little definition up here, Austin, of the inheritance. It's the summation. Let's think of it this way for our purposes. The summation of all God's, which one of these words is important, God's gracious, good, glorious, and guaranteed eternal promises for His people 
in Jesus Christ. It is the summation of all God's gracious, good, glorious, and guaranteed eternal promises for His people in Jesus Christ. It's future. It's going to be revealed to us. But it's all coming from God. It's gracious. It's good. It's glorious. And it's guaranteed for all of His children. Okay. Think about this in verse 17. I'm saying it's God's inheritance. Look at verse 17 again. If children, then heirs, heirs of God. Let's park there for a moment. Heirs of God. That could be and has been interpreted in a number of ways. What does he mean by heirs of God? Well, there are two primary interpretations of that, and I have come to the conclusion that both are true. So let me give you both of them. First of all, of course, we receive this inheritance from God. All things are His, both physical, spiritual, whatever it could be, belong to Him. Every spiritual blessing has its origination in the God who always was and is and will be, you see. And it is these things that God as our loving Father will bestow upon us as His beloved children, you see. Everything that we'll receive, all of this inheritance, comes from God. It's what He gives unto us. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Your inheritance is with God and one day will be given to you by God. And one thing we can know for sure is that our Heavenly Father loves to bestow His blessings on His children. He, Paul tells us, is the only blessed God, the only blessed sovereign, and yet, because He is good, He loves out of the abundance of His goodness to share His blessings with His people. We have been saved and given and granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and it's ours, you see. And He will delight to do it. Second, though, this interpretation, and I'm intrigued by it and actually think there's much truth in it, that God Himself is our inheritance. Read it again as He says this. If children and heirs, heirs of God. Could be that what Paul means is, if he were to summarize the inheritance of God's people, what God's people receive what God's people get to enjoy forever and ever, listen, is God Himself. Friends, even if, I'm, if, even if the Apostle Paul did not have that in his mind, is it not true? What is the greatest aspect of our eternal future? It isn't anyone we're looking forward to seeing there, that's not the greatest aspect. It's not streets of gold or any of those other things. It is God Himself. It's really the 
That is the culmination of all things, that God now dwells with His people. Revelation 21.3. Remember I said, let's be big picture eschatological Christians. Ready? Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And in the true children of God, that should thrill our souls more than anything else we would read about any particular part of the blessings God gives us. Any other part of the thing that God gives to us isn't what we want most, God Himself. I mean, didn't Paul begin the book of Romans with the problem of all humanity and us by nature? It's that we don't really want God. We exchange the glory of God for the things He made. That's our biggest problem. We exchange God for sin and stuff, but the gospel says He's remaking a new people. That trajectory started back in Genesis 3 when God promised to send a Redeemer, and the whole Bible is the tracing of God making one new people whose entire heart is devoted to Him. They want to be with Him. They read the beginning parts of Genesis 1 and 2 and see that Adam and Eve had this wonderful relationship with the Lord Himself. They were in perfect harmony with God and dwelt with Him, and that has been ruined because of sin. But the last Adam, the far greater Adam, has come, and he obeyed where Adam disobeyed, and he went to the cross and paid for all of our disobedience. He's rescued us. He's redeemed us from our sins, and he has given us this hope that you will dwell with God forever and ever now. That's the kind of stuff that's going to really in eschatology, thrill your soul, motivate you much more than trying to identify the Antichrist. Set your hope fully now on the grace that's going to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the end, you see, God, guys, we get God. We get to enjoy Him, behold His glory, Enjoy His presence in all its fullness. Have you ever, I'm sure you have, had times with the Lord. I I don't know if it's sometimes in a service or if it's in your own quiet worship time where the presence of God was so powerful to you. I mean, you felt Him. You were enjoying Him. You had peace, you had joy, you had love, and you didn't want that moment to go away because you knew it was going to. There's coming a day when you're going to experience that by a million, times a million, or billion, or trillion. That's as high as I can go. And it's never going to end. Psalmist says, at your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. There is fullness of joy uninterrupted. That's your inheritance. That's your glory. In the end, you get to be with God. The most well-known 
catechism question and probably the greatest one that's ever been asked and answered very concisely was this. What is the chief end of man? What is man's chief end goal? What is it to be a human? What is it to be living as a human being? Like, what are we really going for here? Answer, to glorify God. Listen to this. And enjoy Him forever. Christian, do you enjoy your God? I know from personal experience that the Christian life can also oftentimes be a time of enjoyment of God. I'm in one now. I'll just tell you. I'm in it right now, and I'm enjoying it. But then due sometimes to circumstances, physical issues, sins, we lose that enjoyment of God. And friends, I would say in those times, we would be spending our time wisely if we remember what our chief goal is in this world, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Or as John Piper put it, changed it slightly, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. You see, friends, what God wants from us and the way He is most glorified in us is when we're enjoying Him most. God doesn't want children who obey because they have to. And after all, it's the right thing to do. Or serves because they have to. Or studies the scriptures because they have to. Or come to church because, well, that's what you do. None of that honors Him. None of that brings him the fullness of glory that is due his name. You know what brings him glory is when we live our lives to his glory because we enjoy him. It's really flowing out of our hearts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. Friends, take that verse, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Shema, they call it, from the word, Hebrew word, hear, Shema. You take that verse and recite it every day. Did you know the Jews recited that Shema every day, twice a day? I think they still do to this day. The Lord Jesus probably did. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Calvary Bible Church. What is the first and great commandment did Jesus say? What did he say? The first and great commandment. The foremost of commandment. Before any other commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And I am convinced that 
that kind of love for God is a work of His Spirit within us. We've talked about this before, but do you remember the fruit of the Spirit? Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is first love. And the greatest kind of love we need, the adoration we need in our hearts, the praise we need in our hearts is for our God. When we lost that, when we lose focus on that, when we've wandered away from that foolishly, let's do everything. Let's approach God again in the name of Jesus. Let's ask His forgiveness for wandering, for finding so many other things to love. Because the world is filled with lots of things for you to love with all your mind and heart and soul to occupy your time and grab a hold of your affections. I mean, the world's just filled with those kinds of things. And once you get bored with one, you can move on to another, you see. But for the Christian, his is a pursuit of the love of God in all the fullness of what that means. We say oftentimes, love is not a feeling. Friends, love may not always be felt, but love originates in feeling, devotion, praise and adoration. We are the people who will one day get to enjoy God forever in His presence and love Him forever, but we're also the people who get the privilege to know Him now. Not perfectly, but presently. We are the people who get the privilege of experiencing His presence within us by His Spirit who is shedding abroad the love of God, that is, His love for us right into our very hearts, assuring you that you're a child of God. Don't push away the peace that that brings, right? Embrace it. Enjoy it. Seek The face of God. That is the command of Scripture. And respond as the psalmist did. Your face then, Lord, will I seek. Those who find God. God, The Lord is one who rewards those who seek Him. Those who really find God. And really enjoy His presence. Are never disappointed. The psalmist says... The faces of those who look to you are radiant and they shall never be disappointed. Friends, we need to recapture our real passion, our zeal, our love, our affections for God. That will mean, as I've said so many times in weeks previous, finding things that have too much place in our heart and doing away with them. You won't miss them because the presence of God by His Spirit will fill all of those supposed voids you have. We get Him in the end because, friends, He is all we need. That's your future. That's your hope. That God Himself will be with you. You will be with Him, enjoying Him, beholding His glory forever and ever. We'll end it there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for telling us about this. Thank you for your, the gift of yourself with us. We live in a noisy world. 
so noisy. And often we can't hear you. We live in a world of suffering, often in pain and temptations that rob us of the, the real felt presence of your peace. We're walking through Vanity Fair and it's calling out for our affections and love and so we're asking that your spirit would work in each one of us a love that is unquenchable for you, Lord. A desire, a hunger, a thirst for you, not what you give, but for you yourself. You can do this in your people, God. You alone can do it. We can't muster this up in ourselves. This is not a work of the flesh. This is not an intellectual exercise. This is a work of your spirit. So we pray that you would do a mighty work in all of us, all of us together. Bring a revival among the people of this church, a revival of love for God with all their heart, soul, and might. I ask this now. I ask it for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.